This morning, we want to talk together about history. Some of us love history. Some of us, when we grab a book, we are quick to grab a biography or something by David McCullough. If you don't know who that is, you don't like history. Others of us hate history. It was our least favorite class in school, and we, when there is any kind of history on television, are quick to turn it. But that's not necessarily the kind of history we're going to be talking about today. What we're really going to be talking about today is not so much history as a subject matter, but a view of history. And in particular, three views of history. Two that we find in the world around us. Two uh, that have some things that get it right. And then we want to look at our text and its view of history and discover why it is so important for us to trust and believe in that. So the first view of history is probably best in, captured by the phrase, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Right, we've heard this most often in debates in our society, in the cultural narratives that grow up around us. We, we hear a, a conversation going on between two individuals. They go back and forth about what's good about something, what's bad about something. And then someone will utter a phrase that goes something like, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And it's as if that is sort of the, the trump card or that is the checkmate phrase. That's the thing that sort of ends the conversation because after all, who wants to be on the wrong side of history, right? No one here this morning is saying, oh, you know what, I really wish the United States had been on the side of Hitler. I really wish that I had grown up and so I could have been on the side of Mussolini. I really wish that I could have grown up and been part of this horrific side of uh, the, the people committing genocide, right? We, we want to be on the right side of history because the, the right side of history is the, is the side that belongs to the winners. It's the ones who look righteous and good. And there's something attractive about this view of history because it assumes there is a sense of progress, right? There's a sense where the, the winning side, because it's the right side, it's the good side, it's the just side, it's the one that carries through. And so that leads us to imagine that because there is this sense of progress, and we look at the, the world around us and we see that there's progress in other places, we're grateful we live now medically than we did 100 years ago. Progress in terms of medical field, in terms of technology. None of us here are wishing that we could go back 200 years in terms of transportation. You're going to forego your car and hop on a horse all of the time? That's certainly going to cut down a lot on our membership because a lot of you would have a long horse travel to get here. Right? We recognize that there is this sense of progress. We want to celebrate that. We want to say, yes, that is right and good. And, but what, what happens with this view, this right side of history view, this progress view, is there's a, a subtle temptation to also see 
that we are wiser and smarter and have things figured out just a little bit better than everyone who came before us. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful phrase. He calls it chronological snobbery. The idea that you are smarter than your parents who were smarter than their parents, which of course is humbling because it means that your children will be smarter than you. The next generation is always going to be wiser than us. But that is the mentality, right? That somehow we have arrived in this place because of progress, we have gotten it right. Now there are some things to celebrate here. One of the things that we can celebrate about this view is that because there is a sense of progress, because we, there is a sense of that we are heading somewhere, it means that the things that we can do in the here and the now are worthwhile. And that is something to celebrate. Right? There is a sense in that view of progress, of being on the right side of history, that we should stand for what is right, true, and good. But ultimately, that view of history falls short for a lot of reasons. But mostly for one big reason. And it's the fact that the human heart is equally sinful in every generation. And no matter how much you and I try, no, much, no matter how many utopias we try to build, no matter how perfect a society we try to create, it is always and inevitably undone by one thing, the human heart. That's one view of history. The other view of history is the cyclical view. And there's some things that are pretty obvious to see here too, right? We watch as the great empires of the world rise and then fall. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. We can watch as the great empires of the world rise and fall and we anticipate that at some point the rise of the United States will also mean that it will fall. And some other country will come in and take its place. And so we are sort of found in this inevitable cycle of global history that's just sort of cycling over on itself. And there are smaller cycles, right? There's the rising and the fall of generations. Generations are, have certain characteristics, and then the next generation, sort of like the pendulum swing, right? And if you swing again, you sort of go around in the circle. And all we're really doing in this view of history is sort of going around and around and around again. And there's something right and good about this view, right? We see this in the book of Judges. It's the cycle. The people love God, they worship him, they forget about him. They, God sends an enemy to take over, they cry out to God, he sends a rescuer, they worship him, and the cycle sort of goes around and around. And we see this in families, we see this in societies, we see this in cultures, and there's a sense where this view of history is certainly true. But one of the dangers of this view is that if everything is just a cycle and nothing is new under the sun ever, what's the point? What's the point? 
Why, why pour into the next generation if the next generation is inevitably going to do this? Why work for any kind of justice? Why work for any kind of goodness? Why put any kind of uh, meaning into your job, whether it's uh, hanging drywall, fixing a car, doing HR, teaching kids, whatever it is, why do anything if it's just an inevitable cycle that goes in on itself repeatedly? Because the story of the Bible doesn't just cycle. We don't get to the garden and then have sin and then we go back to the garden because of Jesus. There is this sense in which God is doing something, in which history is unfolding. And while there are things that repeat, there's lots of things that are different every time a civilization rises and falls. Our third view of history in our text. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your heart, God made you alive with Christ. Now, several weeks ago, we had some math equations up on the screen, and if you have your booklet, you'll notice that the sentences are divided out, and they are divided out in such a way to call attention to things. And in verse 13, the tense of the action is what? I need your help. It's past. It's past. When you were dead. None of us here this morning were physically, biologically dead. And yet God says our history started before we were conscious, before we were aware of our sin, before we had any sense of what was going on. We were dead. We were separated from God. We were uh, not in fellowship with him. We were not in line with God. We were not in line with each other. We were not in line with the world around us, God's good creation. We were dead. And not only were we dead in our sin, but our hearts were so far from him, they they looked mutilated. And when we were dead, God made you alive with Christ. Past action, one time, it's complete. And here's how he did it. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There is a book of life that resides in the, throne, in the presence of God, and on it has all of the names, and in it are written all of the things that we have done, good or bad. And it's like a legal ledger. It's like QuickBooks. And everything's kept track of. And Paul writes that God takes our page and he hits delete. And in its place, something else appears. He cancels the charge of our legal indebtedness and so we move from guilty, not to not guilty, but guilty to innocent. He's taken it away But he hasn't just deleted it, he's put it up on the cross and he's nailed it there. And the word there is titulus, which is that 
placard that goes above Jesus' head. And this is an important part of this because this understanding of how God takes us in history and moves us, for some of us, might just transform our lives. And I mean that. Because what gets put on this thing above our heads is not our name, but our sins. And sometimes uh, there are uh, those of us who have families or friends, you get together, you play a game where you put something on your forehead. And then you have to guess who that character is, or you have to help them guess. And so you get a name like uh, George Washington. And so you say, oh, how is it being the first president of the United States? Or how do you like having a college named after you? Right, so you're trying to you know, get the name. And Paul here is writing that the thing that goes on our head, the thing that goes right above our head, is everything that separates us from God. And all of the things that we are glad no one else knows. All of our browser history is right here. All of the times that we have gorged ourselves or drank too much. All of the times that we, we should have said something in a situation and we didn't because we were cowardice. All the time we not just did or didn't do, but endured the sin of the world. All that stuff goes on here too. And Paul says what happens when we were dead and have been made alive is that gets taken away and that gets nailed to the cross. But that's not the end of it. Read on with me. He has nailed it to the cross, and then in verse 15, and having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so there's two pieces here in this historical, redemptive understanding of history that God has done something that has present repercussions that reverberates in the here and the now and into the future. He hasn't just taken our sin and put it there. He's also taken all of the stuff that's on there that says shame, dishonor, God doesn't love you, you're worthless. How could you have done that? You're regretting that? And asking for forgiveness is not enough. All of that gets nailed to the cross, and then God says to all of those who would say that to us, I want you to come here, and I want to mock you based on those scars. It's as if God comes and says to the powers of shame and darkness, you can mock my child for being a porn addict, but I'm going to make that point of redemption their greatest glory. You can mock my child 
for having made and thrown away their life. And I'm going to take those moments and I'm going to, by the power of my spirit and through the work of my son, when they were dead, I'm going to make them alive and I'm going to turn those things which you are going to mock my children with shame and tragedy and I'm going to say no. Those are going to become the the scars of their glory evidencing what I have done in their life. Now for some of us, this is a life-changing truth because we have a long list of regrets that we carry around with us every single day. Every single moment of our lives, we are well aware of all of the things where we know we fall short and we imagine that when God views us, he sees the titulos, the thing on our head that lays out all of the sins and we imagine when we come to church that everybody else gets to see them too and we hope that when we put on our nice clothes or we dress up or we talk nicely that everybody will will maybe ignore the stuff up here and they'll see this instead because this is nice and this is not. And Jesus says to us, it's not just that the the past has been paid for. My redemption is so strong. My saving power is so great that I'm going to take your greatest pain, your moments of total weakness, the sins in which I have saved you from, and I'm going to use them to shame your enemies. And the expression here, we should be thinking Super Bowl parade through the streets. That God is leading us as his children through the streets and we are carrying around all of the signs and the places of where the shame and dishonor and regret are trying to scream at us. And God says, nope, they're mine, they're saved, they're free, they're forgiven. And even Jesus himself John pictures the lamb who looks as if he has been slain. Even Jesus' greatest moment of tragedy, death on the cross, that stays with him as a sign of his everlasting eternal glory. What would make us think that if God the Father would do that with Jesus Christ, his son, that God the Father would not also do that with you and I, his beloved children? To say of our scars, our healed scars, that God has done something beautiful. If our view of history is progress, we are left in this sense of ever more failure because the truth is we cannot progress to perfection, to ever be good enough. And if it's just a cycle, we find ourselves, it's inevitable, I will fail, there's nothing for me to do, so why even try? But if God has made us alive in Christ, if he has redeemed us, and he has taken our moments and our personality traits that are our greatest shame, and he has said, I have died for those, I have set you free, and those are the moments that I'm going to celebrate in the face of your enemies. 
There is nothing that we can't go out and be, for that is who God has made us to be. Not held down, not inevitably cycling around, but having been redeemed and called into the newness of life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we first want to pray by recognizing there's a few of us here this morning that we carry around a long list. And God, we want to give us just a few moments of your spirit to work in our hearts and just say, hey, I see your list. Let me make it into your, a place of my glory to shame your enemies. Because God, we know that we can't move forward unless we have, unless our past has been taken care of. And we were dead in our sin and you made us alive in Christ. You took care of our sinful past so that we could be made alive and live into that life in Christ. God, some of us here this morning are having a, a, a really hard time believing that you have covered all of our sin. And so if that's us, help us to remember the, the words of the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that we bear our sin no more. Praise the Lord. For others of us, um, we're having a hard time seeing how we're alive. What's different? And God, if that's true, may you send someone into our life to help us to see the ways in which you have grown us into the likeness of your Son. However we are, wherever we find ourselves, God, help us to see the ways in which you are unfolding your plan. And allow us to see, too, how that plays out in our day-to-day -day lives. That we can be part of something very great, your kingdom, that you reign and rule and call us to do faithful work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.